Hello there and welcome to Defiance. I'm your host Peter McCormack and today I've got an interview with Steve McClure and Leah Ward. They are the CIO and the Portfolio Manager at Exponential Capital and we are going to discuss the social and economic impact of the breakdown in global supply chains. Now this week the BBC reported that the world is risking biblical famines due to the pandemic and Steve and Leah recently wrote an article titled Hunger the socio-economic effects of food inflation and disrupted global supply chains. So I asked them to come on the show to discuss this, as obviously this is a very important issue right now. If you have any questions regarding this episode, please do feel free to reach out. But before we get into that interview, I do also just need to thank my sponsor Kraken, the best place to buy Bitcoin, consistently rated the best and most secure cryptocurrency exchange. Kraken puts the power in your hands to buy, sell and trade Bitcoin. Are you a Bitcoiner? If not, and you would like to learn more about Bitcoin, then please check out my other show, What Bitcoin Did, which Kraken also sponsors. And I also have a beginner's guide on there, which can help you understand everything related to Bitcoin if you're new to it. Bitcoin is a decentralized peer-to-peer digital currency without any central authority. By not having a controlling party required to validate transactions, Bitcoin is both trustless and permissionless. It is also an opt-out of government fuckery. And as Edward Snowden said, Bitcoin is freedom. If you want to find out more, head over to kraken.com. Also, if you enjoy Defiance and want to support the show, please do leave me a review on iTunes and subscribe to the show. Follow me on social media and share this out with your friends and family. If you do have any questions about this or any of my other shows, please do feel free to email me. My email address is peter at defiance.news. The reason why we fight is to draw attention to issues and to fix it. Resilient. Resolute. Defiant in the face of impossible odds. We are in the beginning of a mass extinction, and all you can talk about is money. Hundreds of protesters turned out singing Glory to Hong Kong, an anthem of defiance. Steve, Leah, how are you both? Fantastic, how are you? Good, good. Good to see you again, Steve. Good. Thank you, Peter. Hey, Leah. So I saw Leah last in Vegas, and Steve, it was Mexico. And I don't know when I'll ever see you both in person again. We're in a very strange world oh, right now. Yeah, that that is a uh, that is true. That is true. How are you both holding up? Uh, on my end, I'm fantastic. We're um, you know we live in a in a little more rural area, so uh, it's been quite you know we we we've been away from the epicenters of the world and. Uh, have actually kind of gone back to basics and working from home. It's pretty weird here. It came as the second wave. So it had here in Singapore, I should say. It was originally here and now it's back and now it's uh, more of a lockdown situation. Uh, So things are getting a little strange here when we thought it was the litmus test of Asia creating a good confinement situation. But um, the world is definitely in a in an uncomfortable place right now. Yeah, Leah, explain what's going on because we started. We were talking before we started recording, but Singapore has been used as one of those examples, fantastic examples of um, good containment policy. But things are changing, right? Yeah, very quickly, very very quickly, uh, which I I guess is indicative of this virus. It came here first, really, uh, with our proximity to China and with the Chinese New Year. So we had really wave one. 
And I remember a lot of my family members and friends asking, how are you safe? Are you okay? And before it had really spread to the rest of the world and it was completely contained. It was, it was, you know, very safe here. And then it hit the States and, and it exploded everywhere. So it was, I think uh, no one was really prepared for wave two. So when it came back and it was all for the most part from uh, residents who had just visited in the States or the UK specifically, but also generally in Europe, it, it exploded and they didn't, you know, they've been instituting more measures really exponentially each day, but it's, it's not looking great. We're on the same waves of, you know, mandatory wearing masks outside and all the dystopian narratives and looking at it every single day. Apocalyptic. Well, stay safe. I do want to see you again at some point, hopefully at a poker (laughs) tournament and take your money. All right. Well, listen, guys, look, thanks for getting in touch. And by the way, it's a great article. Um, I, I was fascinated by it. And it covered a couple of things that I've been concerned about or thinking about. Now, listen, I, I won't pretend I understand everything in it. Lots of the economics that you cover and, and the analysis of the market and what the Fed could and should be doing, it does go way over my head. People know me by now to know that I don't really understand all this shit. But the kind of conclusions you come into and the actual risk t- to people with regards to the breakdown of supply chains and the potential results or negative results for certain countries with regards to access to food is actually it's a very important story and I recently did an interview with Rao Powell who's he's based in the Cayman Islands and one thing that had come to mind with me with the breakdown of of travel and people not going on holidays there are a number of islands which rely on tourists as one of their main uh, one of their main income streams, but also that these islands also rely on imports for a number of their foods uh, and food sources. And I, I did start to think about what can these small island nations do with if if the supplies chains break down, they can't import food. So it was a timely article. And I want to go through it. I'm using the article as a structure for this. Actually, Steve, quite funnily, I wrote down my first question. It's like, what the fuck is going on right now? Because like everything seems insane. Today we've had the oil prices crashing. It's it's almost unreal what's going on right now. Like, can you explain what's going on? How are you interpreting all of this? Yeah, well, a lot of price has to do with supply and demand. And there's for food, there's plenty of supply. There's always demand, but right now we're experiencing an issue with supply chain. So supply chain uh, radically affects the actual supply of food. So in the U.S., for instance, uh, dairy farmers are dumping milk. It's not that people aren't really demanding much milk, but what happened was as people started holding up and and self-isolating or forced isolation, initially they went out and bought a ton of milk and a ton of cheese and a ton of other things and realized that, well, these things are perishable. And people are starting to live off of non-perishable foods more and more. So milk is sitting, uh, you know, with the farmers and there's no demand in, uh, in, in the suppliers for people wanting to buy milk. Also, global exports is, is, is a huge part of the supply chain. And with people afraid of the coronavirus or afraid of COVID-19, 
less and less people are willing to actually be part of that supply chain uh, for fears of getting infection, especially if it's globally. So China is a huge importer of U.S. milk. And without that supply chain, that, that supply chain being broken, uh, the milk is being dumped. The non-perishables, and, and sometimes wheat is thought of as a non-perishable and, and um, because it can be stored for a very long time. A lot of countries are, are blocking their exports of wheat, particularly countries like Kazakhstan. They were the very first ones. And Kazakhstan is the exporter of wheat to all the other countries who ends in a stand, right? Uh, Uzbekistan and everything else in Central Asia. So, 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 so that's a concern right there. They're, they may not be island nations, but they are pretty landlocked and, and there, there aren't a whole lot of supply chains that reach them outside of, of, of the massive amounts of wheat grown in, grown in, grown in Kazakhstan. And, and Kazakhstan, by the way, is only one of the top 10. They're, 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 not, they're not in the top five, but they are in the top 10. But think about some of the countries that are top 10 wheat producers. You've got Russia, Ukraine, United States, and Canada as, as, as the top four. These are also countries that produce a large amount of oil. Okay. So there is a relationship there somewhat. Uh, oil prices are dropping. So what do you want to do when oil prices drop? By the way, Kazakhstan is also a very large producer of oil. So if oil prices are dropping and nobody wants to buy your oil, well, you shut off the supply chain for wheat and drive the price of wheat up and, and make up for it in that way. So, so I believe some of that is happening as well. Onto the oil problem, uh, nobody's consuming oil. Uh, airlines have grounded most, you know, 90% of their jets for the most part, or their planes for the most part. Uh, people aren't driving, so there's, there's just no demand for oil. I mentioned a week ago that oil could go negative. And a lot of people thought I was a little bit crazy. Over the last two weeks, there's actually- Well, it just did, didn't it? Yeah, well, it just hit negative in, yeah. in Western Canada this morning. Okay, listen, you got to help me out here. Look, I can understand negative interest rates. I can understand the fear. You know, this was explained to me before, but the fear of uh, of uh, money becoming worth less in the future. So it makes sense to to pay people to borrow money from you. I can it, like it sounds stupid, but like it was explained to me in a way that I was like, okay, I can understand that it's deferring risk. I cannot understand a negative price for oil. It doesn't make sense. It's, it's actually quite simple. There's only so many places that you can actually store oil, right? Back when oil crashed uh, about eight years ago, the reason why it crashed is Cushing, Oklahoma is where most of the U.S. oil is stored. And because of fracking, the price of uh, uh, West Texas Intermediary had gone down quite a bit. And at the same time, more fuel efficient cars were on the road. So there was more supply than there was demand and they ran out of capacity to store it. So they started storing them freighters sitting out in the ocean. Well, that's happening right now. There's no more capacity in freighters. There's no more storage in Cushing, Oklahoma. By the way, you can also store oil in the pipelines that, 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 that transport it. And pipelines are now full. So what's happened is in Western Canada, um, so, so, so Western Canada and Western U.S. Don't, sh don't, don't move their oil to the eastern part of the U.S. where, where, where Oklahoma is. And when I say eastern, 
the continental divide is a mountain range going right down, you know, the, the middle of United States and Canada and oil doesn't flow uphill, you know, so to speak, uh, uh, it, it can, but not that high, right? So it's, it essentially has to cross the Rockies. So in the western part of the United States and Canada, you can't get it to where all the storage is on the eastern part. So they're storing it in the pipelines. There's no more capacity in the pipelines. And oil producers have nowhere to put this oil that's just coming out of the ground. And it costs too much to, 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 cap, the, uh, to, uh, to cap the wells. So they're paying people to take their oil. And they're paying people more than what the end user is actually paying for it, which creates this negative oil price. And, you, and you'll see that in Western Canada. You'll see that in some of the uh, Western U.S. pipelines. And by the way, you could see it in other places as well, including Brent, right? So, so two-thirds of the entire oil uh, being produced is priced off of Brent crude oil. And Brent is what is produced in the uh, Northern Sea up near you know, Norway. And, uh, and they're usually closer to water as opposed to West Texas Intermediary, which is pretty much landlocked areas that produce oil mostly in the United States and Canada and Mexico. So Brent is produced near the ocean, and the only way to, 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 to ship them is through freighters, and freighters aren't moving. So they're going to have to start paying these freighters to hold the oil that nobody wants. But that's how it gets negative. Okay, so economics 101, supply and demand. Why aren't people just cutting down supply? Well, Why aren't the oil producers cutting down supply heavily? Yeah, well, it's actually harder than it sounds. Um, okay. So it, 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 when, 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 you, when, you, when, you, when you dig an oil rig, the oil starts coming out of the ground, and if you cap it, it costs too much money to actually stop the flow of oil because then you have to start it back up again one day. And when you start it back up again, it costs so much money that, you know, it, it's almost think about like sunk cost, right? You spend all this money just to tap it. And now it's just kind of flowing very easily. It doesn't, it doesn't cost a whole lot just to, just for it to come out of the ground. And they know that that cost is so high to cap it that they don't want to, they don't want to spend it to cap it. They don't want to spend it to, to restart it. So they're hoping that oil prices will go up later. Right. Okay. So this is exposing a lot of fragility in different economies and how reliant we are on a constantly moving economy. I don't think we've ever, certainly not in my lifetime, ever experienced anything like a, a hard stop to the economy. So this is exposing a lot of fragility. Talk to me a bit. Go, let's go back to wheat because wheat's an interesting one. The only time I've ever known or, or, or considered wheat prices is uh, back when I watched Trading Places. You remember the old film? <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. That was a great movie. Yeah. Yeah, they were talking about the price of wheat and the price of orange juice, right? Right. So, again, why is that so important? Why, are the pri why is the price of wheat so important? Well, the price of wheat and, and, and a lot of basic food commodities are so important is because, you know, half of the world or, or even, you know, more than half of the world spend a, a proportionately large part of their disposable income on these basic food items, right? Wheat, rice, corn. It's, 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 it's the basics of, of, of diet. You know, I, I know, I know Peter, we've talked about this quite a bit and, and, and Leah, you're there now, uh, in, in a lot of parts of Asia or most parts of Asia, um, people live off of three bowls of rice a day, if not two. So, um, or, or, or if you go to places like Africa or the middle East, you know, people live off a loaf of bread and, and that's, 
the majority of the, of, of the world's population. They're, they're, they're not, they're not like, like we are in a developed country where we're eating, you know, lots of meat products and, and varieties of vegetables because there's, there's that variety available. These are, these are, these are the basic building blocks of, 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 of nutrition. So when we, so when rice or wheat or corn goes up in, 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 in price, I mean, this, this has a massive detrimental effect on, you know, most of the, most of the world's population. And are we seeing this now? Are you seeing a change in the price of commodities, Leah? So just to piggyback on that, I think that on top of everything, one of the most salient points that Stephen was making there is just simply put that it's <laughs> it's sustenance. Uh, one of the, the biggest sources of carbs, of protein, of fiber for especially the developing world. Uh, you know, you think about India and non you think about really just the basics. Um, and Stephen was talking about rice for this area of the world. Absolutely. So when we talk about food shortages, you know, the way that rice is affecting Nigeria, we can get into that in a second, but especially wheat for the rest of the world for a very basic food staple is cannot be overlooked. And just to chime in here, um, for me, I think that it, food security breaks down really just to two elements. One is whether people have enough money to buy food and two, whether people can actually secure, have access to that food. So economic access and physical access. And right now, well, generally, actually, I should say poor countries lack both. Um, and if food prices go up, people who spend most of their income on food purchases are unable to buy the food. That's what Stephen was just talking about. Recently, the UNDP said in a report uh, last Monday, when right after we had written the piece, that nearly half of all the jobs in Africa could be lost. So they were warning that, and grain, again, provides the necessary calories for the majority of the people there. So even if rich nations could deliver the food aid to the shores of these poor countries, okay, and we can talk about island nations again in a bit if we wanted, but the food will still not reach the people who need it if there's no means to transport it inland to the areas as well. So, so much of this does also come down to the disrupted supply chains, but right, so let's add one more current element, which is just access, right? And so also what we're talking about here, what you're saying about Kazakhstan and what we're talking about wheat and food protectionism is to add on to this whole equation is trade restrictions are breaking these supply chains and the lockdowns are preventing the laborers from working on the farms. So as Stephen was saying that the dairy farms are throwing out the milk and other farmers in the United States and we're a net food exporter are burning food, right? There's you even have a situation again where there is a surplus of food, but we can't even get it to countries that need it. So all these different elements that you're talking about of the price food inflation becoming too expensive to be able to buy, you know, that you're not able to even get it to those places that now I should just say that you know, when you both have the economic and physical access denied to you in a developing country, you truly have 
of food crisis. And I think that what we're in right now is absolutely a food crisis. And one last statement about uh, island nations, I love the Caribbean, I do miss being in the United States, is that it's very much based on tourism in the Caribbean, at least if, it, sorry, right now I'm just thinking about my Caribbean adventures. So if that's okay, mm-hmm. um, obviously tourism heavy industries. And I was reading earlier today that 80 to 90% of all food consumed in the region in the Caribbean originates from foreign countries. So again, if no one's coming, if you have these disrupted supply chains, if it's not even reaching there, if you don't, you have a decimated economy based on what's happening in the international macroeconomic situation, you just have a trifecta of just everything is smashing at once. And it comes down to, uh, you know, as we're talking today, a food crisis, which is at the the basis of of life. We're dealing with, you know, the coronavirus killing and, and honestly, and hunger. So, well, interestingly, I did an interview with a health communications worker in Kenya, and she said that um, it's a very different situation there because most people would rather die from the disease than risk dying from starvation. And the ability to keep people locked down is going to be very difficult because it's a very different situation in somewhere like Kenya than it like it is like in the US. They don't have the ability to just suddenly uh, implement these big food distribution uh, centers. It's a very different scenario. Now, listen, look, there seems to be two primary different uh, scenarios we're talking about here. We're talking about the impact on people in Western nations, of which a lot of people listening to the show will be. They'll be from the States, the UK, Australia, Germany, etc. And then there's the impact on people in more developing countries. I think we should separate the two because it feels to me there's two different issues here. So let's cover Western nations first, because that's the majority of the listeners. This is something that will likely impact them. So let me talk about the things I've been seeing. Okay, so going to the supermarket, as you know, I went to the supermarket the other day because I missed our interview. But one of the things I noticed that we're past the panic buying phase. The panic buying phase has happened. But as I go into the supermarket now, I'm noticing we've still got many empty shelves. And I don't understand what's going on there. Is it that uh, supply chains have broken down or is it just the amount of time it requires for the uh, supply chain to build back up or even is it that certain producers are, are, are changing the things they're producing that i don't understand secondly also prices are definitely going up now in the uk they reported the average price of a, uh, a shopping basket has gone up seven pound during the crisis but the reason this was put down to was not that the cost of goods themselves have gone up in terms of production, but actually it's that the supermarkets don't have to provide any of the promotions anymore. Because there was so much panic buying, they got rid of all promotions to, to kind of curb that. Now, I don't know if that's true, but what what is going on with supply in developed countries and what is going on with inflation? Yeah, well, I'll, I'll, I'll start there. So there's really three issues happening simultaneously. Um, number one, like I said, um, even even the supply chains in the U.S. are being disrupted. Um, people, so I'll, I'll, I'll use the U.S. example because that's that's what I'm most familiar with. You know, living here in the U.S., we're we're in the northern northern hemisphere. We produce most of our food for you know a, a large majority of the world, but we only do it half the year. The other half of the year, we get fresh fruits and vegetables from the southern hemisphere. 
So uh, we're in that stage right now where it's harvest time uh, in, the, in, the, in the southern hemisphere, and we're not able to get the fruits and vegetables that we need up here. Uh, the same thing's the case for most of uh, Europe as well. So, so, so there's the supply chain disruption, you know, plain and simple. Now I live in California. So for me, it's going to be a, a very different experience because we produce food year round and we're, and from where I live, it's right next to the farm. So I get, I get my farm delivery, you know, every week and I've been doing it for years. Uh, but people in the Eastern part of the nation where it's, where, you know, you actually have four seasons are having trouble getting food. Same thing with, same thing with UK. So, so number one, supply chain issue. People don't want to get on boats to ship things over. People don't want to cross borders. People don't want to allow people across borders, plain and simple. The second thing is, is the actual source of the supply. And in the US, for instance, uh, many facilities have shut down, uh, whether it's, like I said, farmers, dairy farmers dumping milk, uh, entire port facilities have dropped down because uh, have, have shut down because one person has coronavirus. Many chicken producing plants have shut down because they find somebody with corona. People don't know how this stuff travels, so they're afraid that if they're the if they're the producer, and and somebody is sick, they're afraid that if they're shipping foodstuffs, and somehow that infects somebody, then there could be a lawsuit filed. So they have to shut it down entirely until they know that their workers actually are all well again and it's safe for them to ship food. So you've got the beginning of the supply chain, you've got the supply chain itself, and then of course demand for things have changed pretty significantly. Uh, on the demand side, people are demanding uh, uh, foods that are non-perishable as opposed to foods that are perishable because if you're going out in the market, and, and this is happening in the U.S. too, there's long queues in the markets just in order to get in, and which means that you're risking exposure standing there for an hour. And people are afraid. So um, if you're going to go out to the market, you're going to get everything that you need in one, you know, in, in one shot, and you don't want to go back. So you're not going to buy a, a bunch of non-perishable items. That's 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 the psychology behind it. You're going to buy. You know, you're going to buy non-perishables. You're going to buy canned foods and things like that as opposed to fresh. So, 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 so the whole dynamic has changed on, on, on the demand side. Okay, right. Let me let me ask you something also related to that because it does feel like we're still very early in this process. And one of the scary things is that we don't actually know when these lockdowns are going to end. Yeah. People are talking about coming out of lockdowns, which could be a stutter process. I still feel like we're very early in this process. What are the real Risks. Have you looked a little bit deeper about how bad things can get and what people should keep an eye on? So, for example, you you might might not know, but I was recently out in Venezuela, a very good example of where inflation, uh, a country gets uh, impacted by hyperinflation. But it was actually very interesting to be there just to notice some of the, the little things like, for example, no, no soaps in toilets or that whenever we bought a bottle of beer or a bottle of water, it was a really small bottle. There were lots of things like that which I saw. But what are the, some of the longer consequences that people might not be prepared for? Yeah, so, um, so look, I think, I think the, um, as we go down the road here, I'm going to use the U.S. as an example again. Um, so if you look at payrolls, what's reported, we already have 14% unemployment reported. And that was on Thursday. 
but that was from data as of the week before. And if you look at payment companies, uh, one of which I'm on the board for uh, here in the US, we're already seeing uh, in small, medium-sized businesses, 40% reductions in payroll, meaning not reductions in, I mean, this is reductions in people. So small and medium-sized businesses have reduced their payroll size by 40%. We're not even seeing that come out in the data and in the numbers yet. So we're talking about if, if you if you if you do the math, our you know, our 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 models show that we're probably already at 21% unemployment in the US. So think about how much unemployment you have in the rest of the world. A lot of the rest of the world is a gig economy where people are working day by day and using a day's salary from the day before to buy enough rice to feed them the next day, right? So the unintended consequences of a complete lockdown in a lot of places is people are going to go hungry. Uh, and, it's, and, and, and that's both in the developed world and the undeveloped world. You know, you, you can't buy food, uh, toilet paper, you can't find it in the US, and I'm sure you can't find it in other places as well. More sophisticated societies don't use toilet paper, uh, they, they actually, you know, wash with water, which I think, you know, that's probably what will, that'll be the, the, the consequence of what happens uh, in a lot of developed countries as well. So, you know, basic, not, not only basic nutrition, but just basic hygiene, I think is going to uh, be affected. So, you know, I, I would speculate that more people are going to die from diseases related around, you know, related to either hygiene or malnutrition than the coronavirus, which by the way, once you're already going down that road and already sick from some of these other things, the coronavirus is going to affect you more profoundly. Wow. So we get to this point and this argument that's been coming back from some people who are very much against the lockdowns that's saying the implication of the lockdowns might, might be far worse than the lockdown itself. The, the cure may be worse than the problem. <laughs> that's exactly right. Okay, so that, that covers domestically. What about internationally? Because I still have a feeling as, as terrible and as difficult things might get in places like the UK, the US, we will find a way of getting through these things. Yes, we might have an increase in poverty. We might have an increase in suicides. All terrible things. But I think as countries, we, we've got the ammo and the tools to kind of get through this. But then I look at countries like you, Burundi, which you referred to in your article, or Nigeria. The, the implications are, are, are considerably worse, right? Absolutely. I think both developing developed world, if there's one thing that the coronavirus is unearthing is the disparity between wealth gaps. And in, especially a good metric is the Gini coefficient. Nigeria has an extraordinarily high Gini coefficient, which is the wealth disparity between the highest and the lowest poor. And I, I'm honestly, I'm so terrified. I'm speechless. Sorry, right there of just thinking about how devastating this situation is going to be on so many different levels because you have an issue where the health infrastructure isn't in place. You have extraordinarily indebted countries who are still trying to pay back loans from the IMF. You have, uh, again, slums where you have extraordinarily packed people who don't have an ability to not you know, you can't order in delivery here is like the you know, paperless post or whatever it's called, have to go to the markets to pick up food. A lot of people without 
access to electricity, a lot of people without access to running water, a lot of people inland, uh, a lot of people, you just have a myriad, myriad of issues that all come together in a, in a terrible, not a perfect storm, a terrible storm. One example uh, that's coming to mind isn't Nigeria. It's uh, work that I did in India. I worked um, to help a company called SEWA, Self-Employed Women's Association, through with a couple former World Bank employees, the former VP of the Asia region of the World Bank. And we went over to help uh, SEWA after they had lost a large grant from the Indian government. So SEWA is a labor union for the ultra-poor for women. It's really the sister organization of the TLA Gandhis. Now, one of the biggest issues, um, again, was since they lost their funding, this labor union, which has about 3 million women who make less than 20 cents a day, had no idea how to remain sustainable enough to even help the women who, again, were making less than 20 cents a day, mortality rate around 35 years. Now, a lot of what these women were doing is it was organized within unions within this labor union. And they all had been very entrepreneurial. And one of them that I'll never forget is there was 80,000 women in Ahmedabad in Gujarat who were fruit vendors who went out and would sell in the informal market uh, fruit on the streets. And they were able to uh, support their families however they could with that. Now, with the lockdown, absolutely, and a complete shuttered lockdown, especially in India, absolutely they're not allowed to go out and do anything like that. Now, these women also, after spending time, a lot of time with them and, and in the slums, they absolutely had no access to running water. Um, they banded together at night and would go to the river to go to the bathroom uh, once a day. And it was very difficult situations there. You definitely never saw soap. So from a sanitation situation and ability to even stave off the virus, it's, I, I can't, I can't even, you know, comprehend how on a basic level of, of even being able to, you know, get through the virus itself right now would be possible. But two, you're talking about other issues that the coronavirus pandemic right now would exacerbate. Simply put, for women in, in good, quote unquote, economic times to make less than 20 cents a day to have an average mortality rate of 35 cents by selling in an informal fruit market on the streets, what are they going to do? And then add all the other aspects that we're talking about right now, where food's not getting to them. You know, India has banned all exports of rice currently. Every other aspect as well. Who, who can help these women? And if the government as well is now completely scared and is worried for themselves uh, as, as they should be with what is happening worldwide economically, then really taking it down, you know, who are going to help these women? And uh, I think that you guys are absolutely correct in that it, it won't be the virus for the most part that, that kills a lot of people. It will be all the different things that happen 
that decimate the economies that then trickle down to, you know, other health issues, other diseases, you're correct. And just an inability to, to help. If there's one thing that quarantine does is it isolates. And I think that on a very real level, we're isolated from getting help a lot of times. Okay. So we're painting what is quite a scary and ugly picture globally. And that's fine. It is what it is. You know, we should be aware. Um, You know, I grew up in the 80s and I remember seeing famines in Africa. I remember Live Aid. I remember seeing the footage. And it feels like in some countries we could be heading back towards quite a quite a desperate situation there. But we could also, at a time, this could be happening at a time where we also have economies in recession, potentially depression in the Western world, economies which would usually be able to openly support countries in the developed world who are struggling. So this global problem, it seems to be creating a... A spiral of problems. I'm trying to not throw in another word into that. A spiral of problems. Steve, when when you've looked at this, outside of not having the lockdown, which is obviously uh, an option, but if we accept the lockdowns are going to happen because they have, do you have a different opinion on what what different governments could be doing, what different central banks could be doing? You know, because I'd be interested to, to hear if, if you've got any ideas around that? Because we've seen a lot of money that's been going into kind of prop up companies which are about to fail. And I, and I do wonder, as the economy starts to get kick-started, these companies won't be returning to the same level of pr- production and operations as they were before anyway. So they're ultimately going to have to lay off staff again or require more support. Do you have any different opinions on what the what, what should have been done? Well, it's always, it's always easy to play a, you know, Monday morning quarterback. You know, I... I even have a hard time saying that I don't know if, um, if, if the lockdowns are right or wrong. Um, you know, here, here in the States, for instance, each, each state operates very differently and has a different, um, different economies, uh, different population densities, right? New York and California are two places where, you know, for, for instance, I, I think something like two thirds of all the deaths in the U S have happened in and around New York. And it's because of mainly New York City. You know, people are living on top of each other. It's uh, a little bit more of a polluted city. Same thing with San Francisco. And, and, and it seems like we're looking at the data from those two most populous cities or, you know, and, and, and wanting the rest of the country to act accordingly. Whereas, you know, places like Wyoming, uh, you know, North Dakota, where it's sparsely populated, they don't need the same type of of measures, right? So, and I, and I think the United States is getting to that point to where uh, President Trump is allowing the state governors to make the decisions on their own, uh, which I, which I think is actually a really good move. Um, so, 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 so I think that's a step in the right direction. First of all, second of all, from an economic standpoint and a central bank standpoint, uh, in the United States, we're we're printing a lot of money to support these businesses that are failing. And one of the ones that I'm looking at the most is the airlines. People aren't gonna just get back on planes, you know? So, so we've, we've, we've bailed out the airlines, so to speak. Airlines like United and American Airlines are, were days away from default. They've run out of money. They have no revenue coming in and very, very high expenses. And that bailout is, is essentially uh, kept the airlines alive through September. 
I don't believe that people are going to be getting back on planes, you know, in September in the way that they did before, just like you said. Um, you know, psychologically, people don't want to be in a in a small tube in the air that, and, and, and can't get off and exposed to everybody else, right? And 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 again, it's it's a lot of that is 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 media fear driven. A lot of it is fact driven. And by the way, we don't even know what all the facts are. Uh, it doesn't matter what anybody thinks. It doesn't matter what I think. I'm probably wrong. It's it's either worse than I think or better than I think. I have I have no idea, and and and, and probably nobody's going to know either. There, there's there's a lot of political manipulation. There's a lot of media manipulation. Um, but I'm probably wrong one way or the other. That being said. It doesn't matter how bad coronavirus is. What matters is, is, is human behavior and people's psychological attachment to fear. So getting on planes isn't going to happen anytime soon. Going, going on vacations isn't going to happen anytime soon. So yeah, we can, we, can, we can bail out these companies. It may or may not work. Second of all, the U.S. can print seemingly unlimited amounts of money uh, with very little consequences, right? We, you know, the U.S. dollar is essentially, you know, the, the world or the global reserve currency since Bretton Woods. And since Bretton Woods too, it hasn't really been tied to gold. And larger economies um, like United Kingdom, the ECB, um, even even Japan and, and China to a certain extent can print money to keep up. But what about the central banks for all the other countries in the world that, that, that don't have a reserve currency that people use as a medium for exchange? It's, you know, when they print money, all they do is create inflation. So maybe we're going on a tangent here, Peter, <laughs> but uh, what I'm afraid of is you know, people, people use Zimbabwe as an example. Uh, I use the Weimar Republic as an example of how things could get really bad, right? Um, we, we print so much money that people are bringing in, you know, wheelbarrows full of pesos to buy a bag of rice. And we're shutting down our borders because we're afraid that people from other countries are spreading, you know, the coronavirus, right? Uh, it creates... Not, not, not only hyperinflation for many, many countries, but it also creates uh, a sense of xenophobia. And history shows us where that can lead, you know. Okay. Are there any... <laughs> we just go there? <laughs> well, okay. Listen, look, look, look. Okay. It's, it's obviously a bad situation. And, and I'm always conscious that however bad it feels – it's probably a little bit worse down the line. A month away, it's going to be a lot worse. Or two months away, it's going to be a lot worse. Or three months away. Still, what are the positives? Can you see any uh, any positives for this at all? Because there must be something the government can do. There must be some kind of stimulus. Where, where's the optimism? <laughs> yeah, look, that's, 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 that's actually a really good question. You know, uh, not only is are, are, are things really bad, but but also... At this time, when people are in lockdown, for instance, you know, family units in some cases are coming closer together, right? Um, things have, have become a lot simpler. Um, you know, uh, families who are, you know, were, were previously a little bit more disparate are, are, are coming together, having, having meals together. Um, people are doing Zoom calls with their family and friends that they can't see in person. 
Uh, so it's almost like this, this, this desire for community is causing people to come closer together in, 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 in a lot of ways. And, and, I, and I also hear in the States, I see people helping each other, not, not only in the States, but in other countries as well. So I was just in the Philippines uh, with, a, with really good family friends of mine um, you know, a few months ago. And, and those family friends are out as a, as a, as a family unit, it's, uh, it's, are, are out going to hospitals and, 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 and other essential services and feeding people, right? People are, are, are giving of what they have to make sure that other people are sustained. And that's something that we, that we haven't seen a lot in, in, in recent years. Actually, we haven't seen a lot of that since the Great Depression. You know, so, so and, and, think about, and think about the Great Depression in the United States and the rest of the world, how we came out of it. Surely, I mean, you know, fine, there was a war that followed. But after all of that, we saw one of the greatest economic expansions of all time. You know, we put people on the moon. You know, we 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 became a society that uh, that, that valued science and, and and valued exploration, and and came together as a as a, as a world and as a, as, a, as a global community much more. So, I, I think these are all positives that could come out of this. Um, you know, even even from an economic perspective. Um, you know, if we if we do things right, then uh, we we could come out much more better. All right. And so I watched a very interesting podcast the other day. Well, not podcast, like a live stream. The Alex Garcia of the Human Rights Foundation, they did a series called COVIDCon, which is all about um, authoritarian states and reactions to the coronavirus. And one of the things that was very interesting that stuck with me more than anything else was when Naval uh, talked about there is essentially a decoupling from China, which might come out of this. Have you looked at that? Have you looked at how supply chains might change in the future and that we may even go back to more, or we may even demand that products are manufactured and sourced more locally and that that could be a potential positive outcome from this? Yeah, absolutely. So I think we're already starting to see that. I, I, know, we're, I, know, I know I bring this up a lot, but here in the U.S., the other thing that is, is happening too is a supply chain that is uh, more efficient in some ways. So before we had this really interesting, I would call it a decentralized supply chain where you have, let's call it, you know, a thousand different producers sending it to a thousand other suppliers so that consumers can go to a place to buy things. Um, and, and we're moving to a more centralized supply chain where a thousand producers are sending everything to one place or, or, or two or three places. And then from there, they're dispersing it directly to people's doors. It, it, it could be way more efficient that way. Now, the, the, you know, the downfall of that, of course, it puts everything in the hands of thing, you know, people like Amazon, right? It becomes central to your entire world. Uh, which, which, which is never a good thing. But um, at the same time, you know, local production, centralized distribution, uh, it, yeah, it's a lot more efficient on a lot of different levels. I think Leah had something as well there. Yeah, uh, I, think, I think you nailed it. It's interesting, obviously, that you bring up China when we're talking about worldwide supply chain. I get... Sorry, the one thing that's really been going through my mind during this conversation is more close to home. My my mom and her family uh, are corn farmers in Iowa, and especially prescient to this conversation of tying it all back in of supply chain of 
how coronavirus is affecting farms of local, international, and oil. Uh, corn farmers are especially being completely decimated right now to the effect that they lobbied quite hard in Washington and just got a, a, a bailout package. Um, I believe it's $19 billion that was announced last week to help them out. Now, large industries like corn with Monsanto and other players for the most part have been, it's been manipulated the, the industry for a very long time. And you've seen the backlash of, you know, um, people who have talked about uh, non-GMO, et cetera. I think that one upside, uh, just go back quickly to what you had said, is that, you know, pollution is down and environmental effects actually were, um, <laughs> were polluting less. It's, it's actually better on the environment right now. But to the question of supply chains, I agree with you, Stephen, that I think that local localism will will take off a little bit more and be stronger. And I think which I hope. Yeah, yeah, I do love because I do you know what market. I hope? I, I I hope I hope it leads to more locally sourced products, a calm down in in the kind of accelerated consumerism that we have to have. Like one of the things I really hate was this fast fashion. I watched a documentary about fast fashion and the impact on developing countries, the abuse of workers and uh, the pollution on the environment. It was terrible. So I kind of hoped that that this localism would lead to a different change, like to a change in consumer habits. But also with that, you might see a change in politics. You might see more local politics, which I kind of hope for. I think that, that also is touching an interesting point of self-sufficiency. On the other side of uh, the farmers themselves, a lot of people I know are enjoying at least some time out on the countryside are farming. Uh, I should say, what is it called? Uh, victory farm? Where you you uh, plant like uh, um, sustainable vegetables in your backyard. A lot of people are getting into, uh, yeah planting fruits and veggies in their backyard. But a big push that we're learning is that we're pretty self-sufficient, that we can do it, we can handle this. And I think that there is more of an appreciation, I hope so, um, for those local farmers, if we're talking about localism, or elderly healthcare workers, teachers, but especially for sustainability and for those local farms again i think that there is potentially a shift that will stay that understands that you know your community stuck with you and how fragile everything is and potentially that those that went out may be those you know those local farms potentially um in that if they're a farmers collective if, if they're able to be more nimble um, but I, I don't know, Stephen, what are your thoughts? Well, you actually made me think about a, um, uh, a, a story that I read in United Arab Emirates where, you know, if, if you've ever been there, I, I was, I was just there a year ago and they really don't produce any of their own food. Everything is brought from somewhere else. Uh, minus a few date trees and, you know, uh, some husbandry, but, but that really sustains the better ones. I mean, it's, it's not, it's, it's, it's not for mass consumption, uh, but they've been investing a lot of money and this, and this has been really for the last 20 years, 
diversifying their economy away from oil. Um, but one of the things that they have really been focused on in the last 10 years is becoming self-sustainable uh, uh, farmers as well. You think, well, how can you, you know, farm there? But what they're doing is building underground bunkers and using hydroponics to uh, produce all of their own food using desalinated water from the ocean. And then, and then, and then they've created ways to recycle the water within uh, these hydroponic uh, underground bunkers as well. So they're now speeding that up and believe that they can be at least sustainable for their own population in the next two years. Well, listen, look, we are where we are. We are going through this. I think a lot of people might listen to this and start to be a little bit more concerned or worried than they were before because they are having to juggle a couple of things here. They're having to juggle the potential impact on their, their economy and, and the impact on their life and, and what this is going to be for the next year, 10 years, but also the potential, they're having to juggle what's going to happen globally and, and, and no doubt see some very desperate situations that happen in, in other countries. I guess one of the things I would ask you, Steve, is that you've got your finger on the pulse here. You can't change the government. You can't change what they're going to do. You personally have to react. But I asked the question to Rao Powell as well. I said, look, how, how would you prepare for this? What are the things that you can do yourself? And I'll tell you what he said afterwards, but I'd be interested to see what you think. <laughs> are, you, are you talking about a, a reaction to politics or, or, or a reaction to the uh, food supply issues? But there's more than just it's more than just food supply, right? There's going to be a breakdown of all aspects of yeah. society. We're going to potentially see uh, potentially see inflation, but also somebody said to me, "Look, we'll see inflation and deflation at the same time because the price, the, the different assets will be affected differently." But at the same time, we all have to prepare ourselves. We all have to consider ourselves and our family. How are you preparing? What are the things that you're thinking about with regards to your money, your investments, with work, and how you prepare for what may may come? Yeah. Well, it's it's important to note. You know, I mean, you know, Leah and I are both uh, investors. Uh, you know, we 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 invest other people's money as, as as well as our own. And the way that we're preparing portfolios is, you know, we we've actually gone into cash. You know, months ago. Uh, even even before this whole thing broke out, because the economy looked really hot, you know, a little too hot, a little too bubbly. Price to earnings ratios were extremely high, uh, even even before the coronavirus, right? And we were even seeing, you know, I, I keep talking about the airlines. You know, uh, American Airlines was already in a downward uh, turn uh, even even before this. So 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 all this did was exasperate the problem. You know, the problem was already there. This just made it known. So, you know, the first part of preparation was, was moving a lot to cash. Um, the, I think now is a good time to start looking for opportunities. Uh, it's probably not prudent to start investing just yet, but looking for opportunities, holding on to cash uh, or, or other assets that you believe will hold its value uh, during this period of time. And then when um, and then when there's capit uh, capitulation, you know you'll know uh, it's not there yet. We all thought it was there a few weeks ago when the markets dropped and you know Bitcoin dropped, the S and P dropped, everything dropped. All as all risk assets went down. 
And uh, a lot of people thought, oh yeah, this is the bottom. It's not the bottom yet. This is, all that was, was a response to a lockdown and a seizing of, of supply chains. Um, the next shoe is about to drop. And that is the result of all of this. That's when high employment rates are going to be announced. Right now, people think we're, we're at 14% unemployment. Yeah, that's high. It's the highest unemployment rate we've had since 1934. But we will probably go even higher. And, and, and that's just in the US. Think about the rest of the world. I mean, we're, we've already talked about all that. So it's good to have cash right now. It's good to have US dollars or other you know, mediums of exchange and wait for risk assets to go much lower and then and then start making investments. What I wouldn't do is short the markets right now. You know, like like we talked about much earlier, two weeks ago, a lot of people were were buying oil thinking, well, you know, in the US, it cost about $23 a barrel to, you know, to produce oil. And oil was at around 25. I'm like, okay, well, this is the bottom. Well, no, no, it's not the bottom. We already discussed why. And, and by the way, we're still not at the bottom, even in, with some places where it's negative. West Texas Intermediary is $14 a barrel. It can go lower. Uh, the S&P can go lower. All these assets can go lower. We just have to be patient and wait. And, uh, and, and, and that's really how I would be prepared. Um, you know, have dry powder. The markets are up right now. Take some off the table have some dry powder for when the next shoe drops because, because it will, and it'll probably be in the next month and a half or so. All right. Let me tell you what Raul said. He agreed with holding cash and he said physical cash as well. Hold physical cash. Yep. He said, hold scarce assets. So he had in there gold and Bitcoin. He said, cut spend, even though that sounds wrong at this time because we need the economy turning, you should be aware yourself and cut your unnecessary spend. And this last one was be prepared to hustle. <laughs> I like I like all of those. I like all of those points. Yeah, they're all great. Well, listen, look, I know this was <laughs> this was a tough lesson, and uh, there's some tough things going on here. And I, I'm not going to lie; like, there's certain things that do worry me. Uh, I have with my show been taking a look at what's in it happening in africa and parts of the developed world and i have been following that on the news and there's a lot of scary shit going on right now and uh, i'm always nervous that the real impact of this is not even just going to be a month down the line but six months a year 10 years down the line but i do hope some i do hold some optimism my personal optimism comes from some of the changes i've made in my life i cook every meal i make now um, I'm spending more time with my family. I'm driving less. Uh, you know, there has been some good outcomes, and perhaps if the world can reset into a better in a better way, and perhaps perhaps there will be some good things that come out of this. But I, I am also conscious that there are some quite scary implications for for people out there. So I do appreciate you coming on and and talking about this so candidly. Now, listen, look, if people want to follow you and find out more about your work, where do they follow you, Steve? Leo, you after. Yeah, so very easy for me. It's uh, probably on Twitter at Stephen McClurg. Me, super easy as well, at Leah Wald. And for all the developments Stephen and I are building with the asset management firm, Exponential Investment Management. Awesome. All right, guys. Well, listen, appreciate you coming on. Sorry we had to put it back a few days and stay safe out there, stay healthy. Leah, keep me updated on what's happening in Singapore because I would want to know. For sure. Thanks, Peter. Yeah, Peter, thank you so much for having us. Uh, hopefully the next time we see each other, it will be poolside drinking mojitos and all this will be behind us. For sure. I hope so. 
All right, guys, take care. Love you both. Hope to see you soon. Bye. Thank you for listening to Defiance. I do hope you enjoyed this interview with Steve and Leah. Now, this is an unprecedented event on so many levels, and I don't think we will truly know the impact for many months or maybe even years. The socio-economic impact of the breakdown of global supply chains is, look, it's scary stuff, especially when looking at how this will affect developing nations. So it is something I'm going to be keeping an eye on. If you want to read the article by Stephen Lear, it is included in the show notes. And if you've got any questions, do feel free to reach out to me. Before we close out, I do need to thank my sponsor, Kraken, the best place to buy Bitcoin, consistently rated the best and most secure cryptocurrency exchange. Kraken puts the power in your hands to buy, sell and trade Bitcoin. You can find out more at Kraken.com, which is K-R-A-K-E-N.com. Also, if you want to support the show, please leave me a review on iTunes or subscribe to the show. Follow me on social media or share it out with your friends and family. If you have any questions about this show or any other show I've made, please feel free to email me on peter at defiance.news.